you're listening to R&R Rounds podcast. This is episode 77, the third in our mini-series on toxicology. I'm Rebecca Shoup, an emergency physician in Cambridge, Ontario, and I'm your host for this mini-series on toxicology. I'll be joined by other ER docs to discuss their memorable toxicology cases. After each case discussion, we'll wrap up by reviewing five pearls and pitfalls, key points to remember about the presentation and emergency management of each toxin. Today, my guest is my colleague, Jess Gill, an ER doc in Cambridge, Ontario as well. And as you listen to this presentation, ask yourself what drugs or toxins you suspect. What's on your differential? And once the toxin or the drug is revealed, what would be your approach to management? And what are your priorities with regards to this toxin? And so without further ado, Jess, I'm going to turn the floor over to you and ask you to give us a case presentation. What did you see with this patient? How did this all unfold? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me back. I've got a case where the situation was unclear at the beginning, so let's get right into it. 28-year-old female brought in via EMS with a GCS of three. The reported story is she was at a bar with her family, friends, and sister just having drinks. She steps outside the bar to have a smoke and she's found down on the ground. The collapsed event is unwitnessed. And as far as we know, it's mid-afternoon. This is a well-established bar and there's no foul play or anything of that sort. She has no past medical history. She has no medications. And she's brought into our resuscitation bay as a GCS of three, which she was with EMS the entire way. On arrival, the vitals that the EMS hand over to us are actually quite unremarkable. She has a normal temperature of 36.8 degrees. Her blood pressure is beautiful with 120 over 80, heart rate of 88, saturating 98% and only on room air. When I take a little bit more of a history, nothing else seems to have changed. Uh, seemed like an ordinary day. The patient has no past risk factors, no known drug use. She was with her family and friends, so wasn't out having drinks with strangers in a dingy bar with co-ingestions and things either. On exam, I see a young female. She's well-dressed, well-groomed. You don't see any obvious track marks. A happy, healthy 28-year-old, aside from the fact that she's GCS3. She has no muscle tone whatsoever in any of her body. Her pupils may be myotic, but not obviously so still reactive and equal. She has regular respirations, 16 breaths per minute. They're full breath sounds, no sonorous breathing either. There's no vomitus in the airway, nothing else. She's got strong pulses. Chest auscultation is really unremarkable. Belly's nice and soft. Her neck was supple. There's no obvious disability or trauma anywhere on the body. Mucous membranes are moist especially in the oral mucosa and the rest of the spinal exam. When we do a log roll, is completely unremarkable. There's no step-off deformity. She's got good rectal tone, but not moving any of her limbs otherwise. She has no discernible reflexes, and that's pretty much all I get within the first minute or so of our interaction. So you have this patient who just appears to be in a deep, deep sleep. Very deep. Huh. Could not do anything to elicit even the slightest bit of movement. Complete GCS3. But as far as I can tell, she's guarding her airway. Vitals are completely normal. I see no obvious toxidromes, no obvious signs of injury. 
no past medical history or medications to guide me. Ah, so what did you do next? Now, in my mind, I'm thinking about the differential, but even before that, when I get these types of cases, I take it back to the basics, you know, the full A, B, C, D, E, F, G. (laughs) Um, So I'm going through the airway, I'm going through the breathing, the circulation, we've got her connected to the monitors, we get IV access, seems like good sinus rhythm, she's perfusing well, guarding her airway for the time being, despite being a GCS3. And, you know, these are the types of situations where I often hear, if you have a GCS less than eight, you need to intubate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we need to keep in mind the overall patient's clinical picture, whether there's more to the picture that's going to make you concerned about the airway. For the time being, within the first minute at least, this person is breathing on her own, not requiring anything supplemental, and I have time to do a little bit more of an assessment rather than going to a crash intubation. That makes sense. Sounds like the airway was stable for now. Absolutely. Glucose is normal. Mm -hmm. We get IV access. Everything else seems okay, but again, no answers. So empirically, I try naloxone to see if there's any opioid component to it. I started off with 0.4, no real response, went to one milligram, then tried two milligrams. And at that point, the concern, the fact that she's not responding is, is there something intracranial wrong? Mm -hmm. And I give our CT scanner a call, get them ready. And thankfully, there was no other patient in queue. So I was able to take her down. And I think this is the point of discussion too, in a patient like this, if I was in a rural setting where the CT scanners either a couple of towns away or just not accessible at all, that securing the airway is a much higher priority. Right. Understood. But thankfully, at the Cambridge Center, we've got the CT scanner just down the hallway from us. We've got respiratory therapists available. So I take RT, myself, and the nurse down. We do have all our airway adjuncts and airway things that we might need, but go down to the CT because for me, the bigger priority became if there's any intracranial pathology Once the scan is completed, now we've passed a good 15, 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes since the initial presentation. CT scan looks completely normal. No big bleed in there, no mass, and there's no toxidrome to guide me. Empiric naloxone doesn't seem to be working for a possible opioid component. And at this point, the patient isn't giving me any clues. We've drawn labs relatively indiscriminately, I'll be honest. This time I had asked for VVG, lactate a toxicology screen, um, extended electrolytes. Sometimes you can get a little clue with hypocalcemia with toxic alcohol injections or an acidosis. But based off of the patient's clinical presentation, I'm not really getting any signs to point me in any way. The only thing I know is she drank alcohol, stepped out for a smoke and collapsed. Mm -hmm. So now because she's not waking up, I decide to secure the airway and a decision was made to intubate. Thankfully, the intubation was relatively uneventful. At this point, I make the decision to discuss the case with our ICU staff, who was kind enough to come down as well and chat through the case with me. But I'm thinking common things being common, was there hypoglycemia at play? Was there something intracranial? Was there an opioid overdose? And those three things, hypoglycemia, point of care, glucose, completely normal, intracranial causes at least immediately, the CT scan is unremarkable. And opioid overdose doesn't really seem to be responding to naloxone, and there's no real factors on history or exam that suggested otherwise, aside from maybe some meiotic pupils at the beginning. Right. And uh, blood work still pending. And was there anybody on hand, a family member, to give you any 
collateral history for other substances that may have been involved? The story that was given to EMS was the only thing we had available. The sister reportedly was still making her way down to the ER. And to EMS, she had said that it was just alcohol. Everybody had just come together for a good afternoon Friday hangout. Nothing out of the ordinary. So based off of the history and collateral, doesn't seem to be anything else at play. Makes sense. And you said she doesn't take any medications routinely, right? She doesn't have any prescribed medications. No prescribed meds, no insulin use, no history of other illicit substances, you know. So from all angles, it's just a normal person that went out for a drink and was found out. Wow, that's quite a mystery. Mm-hmm. So then we start to get some of the investigations back. VBG, stone cold normal, no acidosis, no lactate. CBC, creatinine, electrolytes, extended electrolytes, all normal. Tox screen is still pending. And as you know, at Cambridge, we have aspirin levels, acetaminophen and ethanol through the serum, and then the urine drug screen for a whole host of drugs. But both of those are pending. So I don't really have very much in the way of answers. And I discussed it with our ICU who was kind enough to come down and see. And while we're seeing them, then we get the family members coming in. But the sister says that her sister is, is quite a heavy drinker uh-huh. and has been drinking for quite some time. And the rest of the family doesn't know. So now the situation shifts towards alcohol intoxication. But in my, albeit short career, I haven't seen alcohol intoxication to the point where somebody's come in with a GCS of three and in a complete coma. Right, right. And sure enough, as the rest of the lab work comes back, I see a ethanol level of 118 millimoles per liter. Wow. Something that, again, in a day-to-day alcohol intoxication, I don't think I've ever seen. And for context for our listeners, the Ontario legal limit corresponds to roughly 18 millimoles per liter. Wow, 118 millimoles per liter. So extraordinarily high ETOH level there. That's right. And the story becomes fitting. So she was sedated on very low doses of fentanyl and propofol post-intubation. And she's starting to break through this very aggressively. And she's waking up quite quickly. And the ICU physician had made the decision at that point to continue on with the sedation. And we went to higher doses just in case there was something else at play while we were still getting the story. But eventually, a few hours later, she was extubated and was able to provide a full story. And again, no co-ingestions. And the story didn't change, even by the patient's account. Huh. So how long was she intubated for in total? I believe six to eight hours. She was under my care for about an hour and a half or so. Yeah. And started to do a little bit of uh, movement and uh, fighting against the vent at about two hours into the presentation. Okay. And then they did actually physically take her to the ICU? She did go to the ICU, and then she was extubated in the ICU afterwards. But I followed along just because it was a bit of a mystery to me. And it did make me think, what else do I need to be considering here? The differential of a altered mental status patient, especially with no clue. You know, we talk about thyrotoxicosis or myxedema coma and uh, electrolyte abnormalities, all these things being play for altered mental status. But in general, I would say those patients have somewhat of a history or at least are older in age or something else that's kind of at play here. Yeah. And for it to happen so suddenly too, like she was inside the bar having a drink, stepped out for a smoke and within minutes was unconscious. 
That's it. Completely down. And now that I think back to it, you know, I'm wondering if part of the story was withheld by the sister to the EMS about how many drinks were actually had, because I believe we were told maybe four to five drinks, but definitely not correlating with the serum level that we saw. Right. Right. And without some kind of a co-ingestant to sort of amplify the effects of alcohol. And then you got this level of 118 millimoles per liter of alcohol in and of itself. So yeah, it was just this very profoundly altered mental status, secondary to very, very high levels of alcohol. And then the sister probably, as you say, probably trying to cover a little bit. Potentially at that time, I think the family members might have been around while the history was being given, which is unfortunate for her care. Um, when we have a little bit more of a clarity as to what it is that we're treating, it makes things much easier and obviously much easier for the patients too. Yeah. But it got me thinking, you know, toxic alcohols and what it is that we need to look out for. And I think for the listeners, it would be helpful to see some clues. I think tachypnea being a big, big thing to keep in mind if you're noticing that could be suggestive of an underlying metabolic acidosis which you don't yet have VBG proof of. Right. So something to keep in mind there. We can see seizures in these types of patients. And if, especially the serum alcohol that's been drawn afterwards, and in our patient, thankfully it did correspond. But if it doesn't, then you need to start going down that road and potentially getting your poison center involved sooner. Because these toxic alcohols are not going to show up on your serum alcohol screen. That's right. All right. I do believe some centers have the ability to search for certain ones and get their specific serum levels. But uh, at Cambridge, we have the ethanol and serum osmolality as the only loose. All right. And then you were alluding to earlier how this might have played out differently if you didn't have early access to imaging to rule out a traumatic cause or a traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. It's always a concern, right? The yeah. patient presenting to you, but no real history there. And complete collapse being a, a very concerning story for atraumatic intracranial hemorrhage. Yeah. Granted, we don't have any Cushing's response in this patient and uh, no real other focal deficits or anything else of the sort, but it very well could have been. And that's where the CT was my priority. But I think if I was working at some of my rural sites, my number one priority here would have changed to securing the airway and then subsequently preparing for transfer because you can't predict And one of the main indications for intubation is a clinical course where you either expect deterioration or you're not quite certain and there's a need for transportation with a secured area. Yes, because for all you knew, you could have been sitting there with a patient who was about to herniate. You don't know at that point. It's it's a very real possibility in presentations. Yeah. And again, even if you're in a larger center, I think there could be practice variation in this and there may be clinicians that will advocate for empiric intubation. In my case, thankfully, the CT scan was ready and available versus being able to set up for the intubation, I think would have taken another few minutes because we had no reason to do it as a crash in a patient that is breathing on their own and managing very well on room air. No signs of sonorous breathing, no previous vomitus in the airway. So in my mind, if I have my tools with me, I can first and foremost clinch the diagnosis and be able to do it that way. But If you have even the slightest bit of delay, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to intubate at the beginning. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's a good uh, crossroads that you point out there. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a very good case of a very common toxin that can sometimes present with really, as in this case, an extreme altered mental status, comatose state, really. Absolutely. 
So a good learning point for me, and uh, not everybody falls on that same gradient of alcohol intoxication that I think we're all used to at a, a New Year's Eve party. That's right. That's right. And it's also, I mean, it's good that you didn't automatically go to that as the diagnosis. Oh, well, she'd been drinking at a party. No, this lady appeared to be, this patient appeared to have a much more profound decreased mental status. Uh, So you kind of went looking for other possible causes. And then gradually, uh, she woke up and and kind of was able to solve the mystery. And then the labs helpful in solving the mystery. Yes, yes. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jaz. I look forward to talking to you about your next case in the next episode. Thank you for having me. The R&R Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rebecca Shoup, editing by Jonathan Wallace and show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.